Right, good afternoon. Give your attention. Thank you very much. I'm just very briefly going to welcome you all to Kellogg College. Thank you very much for coming along this evening. I'm certainly looking forward to uh, this evening's lecture. I think it's a, it's a great honor and privilege for, for us all to have um, got Lord Putnam to agree to be this year's Bynum Tudor Fellow um, at the college. I've got a, it would be, take too long to, to read out a list of, uh, of Lord Putnam's um, uh, films. So I thought what I'd do is just choose my favorite three, which uh, I think in third place would be The, the Killing Fields, which uh, isn't exactly light entertainment, but I think it's one of the most politically important films which has been made. I think in, in second place for me, maybe Chariots of Fire, and in first place, definitely Local Hero. But there is a, a long list of, of um, other uh, films made. But for more than 10 years, Lord Putman's devoted himself to a range of, of other activities um, in the fields of, of education and um, environmental issues. He's currently Chancellor of the Open University and therefore is a, is a good friend of lifelong learning, making it particularly appropriate for, for um, Lord, Bynum to, to Lord Putnam to have a, a fellowship um, here at, uh, at Kellogg College. He was also um, founding uh, chair of the, the National Endowment uh, for Science, Technology um, and the Arts, and has worked uh, tirelessly for UNICEF over, over the last 10 years as well. And on environmental issues, was recently uh, chair of the scrutiny committee of the Parliamentary um, Climate Change Bill. So it's a, it's a really great um, honor and privilege to be able to introduce Lord, Pynum, sorry, Lord Putnam to address us now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's a very kind introduction. Uh, the principal purpose of my lecture this evening is to say a little about where I see the world of education leading uh, over the next 10 years and more. But let me begin, if I may, with this thought. I'm anxious to bring home to you the fact that the world is no longer country-size, no longer state-size, no longer nation-size. It is a world in which we must all get along together. Now that, to a great extent, that remark is utterly self-evident, but it was far from self-evident at the time the US President Harry Truman first said it in June 1945. It was actually regarded as quite an original thought. Looking around the wreckage of what had been Europe, he'd come to the startling conclusion that all of humankind had got itself into this mess together. And that theme, the need for collective action, will. I think, I hope, recur and inform a great deal of what I have to say this evening. Almost exactly two years ago, as you've heard, I was installed as the fifth Chancellor of the Open University after 10 very happy and thoroughly productive years occupying the same position at the University of Sunderland. That day at the OU, during my acceptance speech, I tried to convey the tremendous sense of pride I felt and actually continue to feel in taking out what I see as a significant role at what I believe to be an extremely important institution. My reasons were and remain relatively simple. Not only is the Open University the educational organisation that most closely equates to my own rather bumpy academic journey, but it's also the repository of the dreams of literally hundreds of thousands who, like me, thought that any chance of higher education had, for whatever reason, simply passed them by. In that sense, I completely empathise with and get the mission of Kellogg College to advance lifelong learning for everyone, no matter what their circumstances no matter what other commitments they may have to juggle with in their lives. I'm right in the middle at the moment of um, the round of 
oh, your graduation ceremonies, and what's very special about them, and quite, quite different from my previous experiences, is that everyone that comes across the stage is a story. And this is a very different thing. You sense it, you feel it, it's in the room. It's, you very much feel it, actually, in the atmosphere of the supporters and loved ones who've come along on the occasion. It's different and special. So I hope it goes without saying that I'm a, a great admirer of the college and everything that it's already managed to achieve here. As you just heard, having spent 30 years as a movie producer, I've devoted the past dozen years working in one or other areas of public policy. Most of the time has been spent wrestling with the complexities of education. And this has offered me the opportunity to engage with people who every single day of their working lives are attempting to mould the, the building blocks, the quality of which will, in my judgement, determine the future of this planet. Those building blocks are learners of every kind, from young to old, and the people I find myself principally working with are their teachers. And if, from that perspective, their perspective, the future looks increasingly like a war, and I'll come on to that in a second, then this most recent generation of teachers are pretty well the only infantry we have available to us. The war I'm referring to being a war between our failed present and the possibility of a rather more imaginative future. In essence, I believe it's a war between our worst and our better selves. It's also the case that everything, and I really do mean everything I've learned through my work in cinema, for UNICEF, and in various spheres of government, has only reinforced my view that in the words of the author and scientist H.G. Wells, the future really is a race. It's a race between education and catastrophe. And finding the prospect of catastrophe pretty unattractive, I've been only too happy to throw my energy behind improving the quality and the reputation and the relevance, indeed, of education. Now, Al Gore brilliantly caught one aspect of this war in his film, An Inconvenient Truth. But what struck me <coughs> when watching that film was that our ultimate success hung to an almost terrifying degree on the emergence of a significantly smarter and rather more engaged global society. A generation of people with the skills and the attitudes that might steer this world of ours to a rather safer place than at present looks likely. H.G. Wells was right. If catastrophe is to be avoided, then education has to triumph. I decided that just as an inconvenient truth had been the catalyst for a wider and better informed debate around climate change, what was now needed was a similar debate focusing on the future needs of education. So after a, almost a year of effort, here this evening is a, a glimpse of the opening six or seven minutes of what at present remains very, very much uh, a work in progress. I'll just hope I can crack this. taster. We're about, probably about five, six weeks away from finishing. Interesting enough, we interviewed uh, on Monday uh, President Obama's new Secretary for Education, a man called Arnie Duncan. Very interesting interview indeed. Just to, as it would take the curse of it being just about education as well, a colleague of mine, some of you may know him, uh, Sir Michael Bishard, is now running and responsible for a, a kind of supra staff college for will-be permanent secretaries. And I think probably David's spoken about it. I, I know I have. And said to me the other day that after a year of doing it, uh, that he felt that the challenges that UK, in fact, the global challenges we're facing, 
happen to fall into all the categories that government peculiarly handled very, very badly. They're all about connected governments. They're all the things that we actually, we have a system of governance that just doesn't address the, the nature of the challenges we're facing. So it's not just about young people. And of course, the race that H.G. Wells was referring to has been thrown into very sharp relief in ways that he could never possibly have predicted by the economic crisis that's now taken hold across the globe. I think it's slowly dawning on most of us that we're ultimately going to have to pull ourselves out of this recession in a very old-fashioned way by addressing the basics, by seeking ways to improve our creativity as well as our productivity, by saving more, by studying harder, by doing all those things we always knew we had to do, but we're either, frankly, too ill-informed, too complacent, or maybe just too stupid to remember. The clip I just showed pretty well sums up my reasons for spending the last dozen years attempting to promote a greater level of interest in reassessing the role of education in this very rapidly changing world. Underachievement on the part of the individual or the system is a problem that's probably as old as mankind itself. It stunts lives everywhere and its impact is equally damaging at a personal, a community, national or global level. But the past, if the past eight month, months that we've just been through have taught us anything, we should surely have realised that this is no time to be resting on any kind of laurels. After all, how many of us can honestly put our hands on our hearts and claim to have anticipated the full extent of the re financial repair work we're already being forced to take on board? Can we be remotely certain that we've managed to get ourselves ahead of the curve of change, or are we possibly slipping somewhere behind it? As Eric Hobsbawm uh, put it earlier this month, and I think Eric, is, if he isn't 90, he's very close to it. He said, the 20th century is now well behind us, but we've not yet learned to live in the 21st, or at least to think in a way that fits the 21st. The serious opportunity clearly lies in the longer term. We need to be thinking through the impact of digital technology, the, for me, the transforming agent in all of our lives. It's going to, is it, is going to have the, the impact it's going to have on users, on content creation, and on delivery 10, 20, maybe even 50 years from now. But predicting the future has always been a, a very hazardous business. But surely we owe it to ourselves to at least plan for change, or maybe even begin to plan for something closer to transformation. And that requires our being prepared to interrogate many of our most cherished assumptions. For, exact, for example, about how learning happens, and how it may best come to be distributed, shared, and even reused. We'll then need to develop learning solutions which are adaptable enough to become fit for purpose over the longer time frame. And these must be much more than just a series of quick fixes which very quickly become eclipsed by the next technological or pedagogical breakthrough for which we once again find ourselves probably entirely unprepared. So how are we going to achieve this kind of vision of the future? Well, we definitely need to start by having a significantly more commitment and imagination in developing what I'll call our digital infrastructure here in the UK. I'm very fortunate, I was mentioning this to Sir David earlier, in being able to visit Singapore a couple of times of the year in my capacity as an advisor to their media development agency. Now there, I listen to advanced plans to ensure that two gigabits of connectivity are available business to business by 2015 at the latest. Meanwhile, we in this country are giving very serious thought to making two megabits generally available with a long-term ambition to increase this to 50 megabits by 2020. Now, I make that about 1 40th of the ambition of Singapore. Clearly, one of these two options is somewhat mistaken. And I have a very nasty feeling that our ingrained instinct in Britain to make do and mend 
will encourage us towards the soft option. And I'm a little, more than a little uncomfortable at being asked to bet my entire state pension on the outcome. Let me offer a, a short quote. Above all, we need a greater level of dialogue and understanding between the education service and the broadband industries that are developing this new world so that the needs of education can be identified and fully taken into account. Now, was that taken from the UK's government's recent interim report on Digital Britain or from a recent European Commission policy document on the knowledge economy? Sadly, the answer is neither. It comes from a document entitled Superhighways for Education, The Way Forward. It was launched by the then Deputy Prime Minister Michael Heseltine in November 1995. Can I be alone in thinking that we urgently need to rediscover the same levels of courage and progressive thinking that were responsible, for example, for such transformative achievements as the 1944 Education Act. For, as I've learned as chair of FutureLab, an organisation that's tasked with developing innovative resources and practices that support new approaches to learning, the way in which people learn is changing both very radically and very fast. We're seeing increasing numbers of people engaging with learning in online communities, taking on the role of teacher or expert, mentor, or just plain advisor to other people irrespective of their age and experience. Of all the developments, pedagogical developments of the last dozen years that I've actually physically witnessed, for me, the most, in a way, the most touching and the most extraordinary have been the way in which primary school teachers offered the opportunities that interactive whiteboards give them, are prepared to do the one thing that teachers traditionally were always told not to do, which was give the impression that maybe the student knew better than them. They will actually say to, the cl to a class of eight-year-olds, Johnny, you're so much better at this than me. Out you come. Come and show me and the rest of the class how you do this. And out comes little Johnny and fiddles around. And what's amazing is the extraordinary impact on Johnny's peer group. The kids know the teacher knows more. There's nothing surprising about that, and you don't, can't blame them if they begin to drift off. But the idea that Johnny, who they all thought was stupid, knows more, that is a challenge. And all of a sudden, you get a completely different tension, for want of a better word, in the classroom. But that requires great courage on the part of the teacher and indeed a level of training. But that was not true. That didn't exist. When I started my job in 97, nothing like that existed. I would say by 2005, it had almost become mainstream as a pedagogical exercise for more confident young teachers. By way of example, the ability to harness the viral power of, this may sound odd, but I believe it, um, Sorry, but only by embracing the potential of these new and ever more extraordinary learning processes, most of them, as I say, facilitated by digital technology, and then taking ownership of the ethos, this is very important, that drives them, will we, in my judgment, produce a generation of creative learners with a breadth and a depth of understanding that's capable of dealing with what's likely to prove a very, very difficult and challenging century. By way of example, the ability to harness the viral power of multiplayer, multiplayer online games to nurture and to encourage and reward skills such as collaboration, problem solving, resilience, creativity, allows us to develop a whole range of abilities that are likely to become ever more valuable over the next 20 to 30 years. And it's my belief that, frankly, we've only just begun to explore the possibilities that are offered on the online, in, by the online world. And if I'm right, then the opportunities in all of this for the future of teaching and learning are immense. More broadly, the online world offers by means of simulations and augmented reality, and this is very important, opportunities for different, and I'd argue far more authentic learning than could be achieved with traditional teaching tools, including a deeper and possibly even a richer understanding of sometimes quite difficult concepts. Can I offer a 
a very good example of what I mean, and I've used this a good deal over the last year or two. The eminent historian, Neil, Niall Ferguson, suggested that he would write his books somewhat differently in future, and perhaps rather more sensitively, having immersed himself in an interactive game called Making History, which allowed him to subjectively engage with historical scenarios he'd never previously considered. I'll, I'll put a bit of flesh on that. He explained in a lecture that I attended that uh, he'd written a book about the origins of the Second World War and was pretty judgmental about Neville Chamberlain and the Munich crisis and the decisions that had been made. Then what happened was he then immersed himself in a, a, the game which makes you subjectively look at the world that, that Chamberlain was looking at in 1937, let's say. So historians can't help themselves. Because you know the result, you make judgments based on the result. But once you start looking at the options that were available to the man making the decisions, it all changes. And he said, I realized that I was positively cruel about Chamberlain. And in fact, the options available to Chamberlain were extremely limited. And he said, I have to not only just revise my opinions, but actually revise the way in which I work and become, well, a different type of historian. And I think it's rather a good and fairly graphic example. But my bigger concern is if we fail to embrace the potential of these applications, if we fail to introduce young people in particular to these possibilities, we run a very serious risk of relegating education itself to a form of second-class status in the information age, at least in their eyes. That is to say, if we don't utilise the technology and the tools that they are entirely familiar with in their daily lives, we have a problem. I was at an extraordinary uh, symposium in, the, um, in, in San Francisco, and uh, someone brought one of the kids, 16-year-old, uh, to the podium, talking about his experiences. And he said, um, the young man said, look, the problem is very simple. When I walk into the classroom, I have to power down. I thought it was an amazingly powerful thing. I power down. Um, another example, uh, which has, has, has reached mythic status now, but among classes, is the, is the kid who, the teacher was writing the homework uh, to be done over the weekend on the board. And the other children were looking and, and, and copying it down. And one extremely bright spark got up from the back of the class, walked forward, and did that. <laughs> and photographed what was on the board. And you know what we did? We took his phone away. Now, until we can find a way of coming to terms with this, because I promise you, and I would have done, that kid walked out of the classroom, not thinking he was wrong, but thinking the, class, the school was balmy. Um, and uh, anyway, I could go on and on, and I, 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 I won't, but I feel, as you judge, fairly strongly about this. I believe that we need, among other things, to take a deep collective breath and accept the increasing centrality of the moving image of the heart of learning. Well, he's a film producer, he would say that, wouldn't he? To recognize that this is no longer simply about the power of narratives absorbed at the cinema or on television, but also the power of image-supported information that's downloaded on phones, via computers, iPods, Xboxes, in fact, every conceivable and convenient device possible that reaches the user. We already live in a world saturated with moving images. They're rapidly becoming the dominant means by which many people, including most young people, learn about and indeed make sense of the modern world. Consider this. 15 hours of video, both professional and user-generated, are uploaded to YouTube every single minute. That is one year's worth of content every 10 hours. 
and there's been a 50% increase in the rate at which this content's being uploaded in just the last 12 months, with every sign that it's only going to grow exponentially. Now, what this helps underline is that all of us today are surrounded by a plethora of audiovisual content and all of the learning opportunities that technically certainly can come with it. There are issues, indeed, about helping people sort the wheat from the chaff, but that's a manageable challenge. Um, while we may be, be becoming ever more competent technically, there still remain considerable challenges about sorting, sorting out what's important, what isn't, and reminding us that moving images don't merely reflect, but at times even shape the world that we live in. One of the more interesting challenges facing the higher education sector in the UK is the precise manner in which it decides to formally interact with the ever-growing private sector. With global expenditure now running well into the trillions, we'll be kidding ourselves to believe that the corporate world is for long going to keep its paws off the potentially very profitable world of education. In fact, a recent Universities UK report tells us that, in sharp contrast to a decade ago where it barely even got on the graph, one in three students today around the world are already studying with private, with private providers. But unless we're willfully complacent or over-compliant, I don't believe this needs to be any bad thing. In fact, if handled well, it could even represent a great opportunity. No one understands better the importance of interaction with the private sector and the great foundations that are spun off from them than those involved in the creation of this college. And after all, as incumbents, you, in fact, the education sector generally, have an enormous amount going for them. On the one hand, the corporate world doesn't yet know how to do education, and anyone serious will quickly realise the need to hook up with the best possible strategic partners. The vital concern of the, edu the existing educational community must be to maintain the integrity of the educational ethos as all of this develops, not to roll over and simply become a valuable facility through which can be expanded the commercial ambitions of the Murdochs, the Microsofts and the Googles, but to sustain, as it were, the moral position of learning within society. 30 years ago, in the 30 years in the film industry, has taught me that you can't possibly create successful partnerships with people who have an even marginally different set of objectives. In fact, we need to consider educators, technologists, and arguably the students themselves as joint stakeholders in the design and delivery of whole new learning environments, environments which respect and complement the complexity and the importance of the educational process, environments which exploit to the full the extraordinary range of resources that are now on offer, and not all of which are technological, and some of which will inevitably involve an engagement with brand new educational goals. Now, some of you might quite rightly ask, why should we go to all this trouble? Isn't there a real danger that we could end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Well, the truth is, I believe we've no choice but to engage. No choice, that is, unless if we want the reach and the resources to ensure that we develop and nurture every last scrap of talent that we can find in order to take on what may well prove to be the most difficult set of challenges mankind has ever been required to face. And this time, just as Harry Truman warned us in 1945, we are inevitably going to sink or swim together. Please believe me, if nothing else, as we grapple with the fallout from the current financial crisis, what we now know to have been the result of 25 years of financial folly will be as nothing compared to the whirlwind we are likely to reap from 200 years of environmental folly. And it is that that makes today's educational challenge so much more urgent than, that that's ever, than anything that's ever gone before. We cannot possibly afford to go forward with people 
who have accepted the very limited sense of responsibility that we've imposed on them for the last 50, 60, 70 years. Something I'd like to go into a little later. We've reached, we actually did reach, an economic tipping point on the 15th of September last year. The day that Lehman Brothers went down the tubes, AIG was going, and other banks were in trouble. 15th of September, we woke up and realized that the world was changing. We will reach exactly the same environmental tipping point over a period of time during the next 10 years at the very outside. Now, my judgment is that to deal with the impacts of both of these, we need to reach, to come to terms with and embrace an education and societal tipping point right now. Should this present generation of decision makers be foolish enough to hide behind our present economic woes and settle for the do as little as, po as possible option, then our children and our children's children will be required to play a truly crippling price, a price that will make a mockery of the comforts and the pleasures that most of us were brought up with and which today we take entirely for granted. In fact, those who follow us will have every justification possible in cursing us for having been educationally and environmentally irresponsible in jeopardizing their future happiness. The timeframes affecting nations and regions might be a little different, but as the Archbishop of Canterbury did very well to warn us a few weeks ago, God does not guarantee happy endings for anybody. Only the collective efforts and sacrifices of every one of us will bring this planet to a safe, or at least a safer place. I'll go a little further. Should we fail in Copenhagen in December to act on all the societal and environmental warnings we've been given? Should we fail to get to grips with these impending crises? There'll be no need to ask for whom the bell tolls because it'll be tolling for every man, woman and child on this once beautiful planet. And this time, as I say, we'll only have ourselves to blame. If I may, I'd like to finish with something I picked up in the New York Times a couple of months ago. It's a very short quotation from the book The Great Gatsby in which the narrator, Nick Carraway, assesses the brutal world of the principal characters, Tom and Daisy Buchanan. He says this, they smashed up things and people and then retreated back into their money and their vast carelessness. And they let others clean up the mess that they've made. Now, to me, this vividly describes our present situation with regard to the financial crisis that we've unquestionably largely brought upon ourselves. But how much more serious will it be if one day that precise passage also accurately describes the way in which the actions of my, of our generation, have succeeded in smashing up our planet. In every sense, therefore, what lies ahead will involve an unprecedented degree of collective responsibility, an entirely new understanding of the consequences of each and every one of our actions. And that, frankly, is a very big ask. But at least for the present, it's not an entirely impossible one. Thank you for listening to me. <clears throat> Thank you very much indeed. It's uh, fascinating. Now, uh, Lord Putnam's very kindly agreed to uh, take it from you.